So both of these stories have reached so many audiences through conferences, through advocacy organizations. Finding Kate is used every semester in a number of history methods classes now to talk about what's the process of doing history. And equally powerful, students are using these stories to share their work with their families and their communities. So some people say that they're able to communicate what they're doing in a scholarly way, kind of for the first time to their families and communities. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Garner. Hey, Brad. Hi, Tiffany. Now, today, I am just so excited because our guest is here to talk to us about digital storytelling. And when I hear that, it just makes me curious, and it seems like it really fits everything that you and I kind of talk about behind the scenes, Brad. So Absolutely. Today, we're welcoming to the show Kelly Shrum. Kelly Shrum is an associate professor in the higher education program at George Mason University. Her research and teaching focused on scholarship and teaching and learning and on teaching and learning in the digital age, including online learning, scholarly digital storytelling, and digital humanities. She is the co-editor for Teaching and Learning Inquiry, the journal for the International Society for the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning. Shrum has directed more than 60 digital humanities projects with funding from the federal and state agencies, foundations, and school districts. Recent examples include History of Higher Education, World History Commons, and the Amboina Conspiracy Trial, winner of the NSW Premier's History Award, Teaching History, and Teaching Hidden History, a graduate hybrid digital history and history education course. Strum has published widely, including recent articles on scholarly digital storytelling and teaching historical thinking in hybrid and online settings. And she presents her work nationally and internationally, Shrum received her BA in History and Anthropology from U.S. Berkeley and her MA and PhD in History from Johns Hopkins University. Please join us in welcoming to the Digital to Learn podcast, Kelly Shrum. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. We have come across a few of your articles, and we're so excited to dig into that research in a little bit. But the way our show typically works is we start with some warm-up questions. So in order to get to know you a little bit better... Would you share with us a hobby or an interest that's important to you, but isn't represented in your career bio? Yes, absolutely. I would say pangolins, more specifically protecting pangolins. They're currently the world's most trafficked mammals. And I learned about them during a project we did for the State Department on wildlife trafficking. And I just found them so fascinating. They're prehistoric mammals. They're nocturnal. They're covered in scales. Each one eats about 70 million ants and termites a year, so we can thank them for that. Um, And when they're in danger, they roll into a ball, which has protected them against predators for a really long time. But unfortunately, it makes them really easy for humans to capture. So there's been some progress in the past few years, but there's a lot of work to be done. So I'll just make a plug to learn about pangolins. They're amazing. Wow. So how does penguin trafficking work? What's the motivation there? The desire for their meat and their scales has increased and it's become a delicacy. So unfortunately, they're being trafficked a lot and it's really harming their ability to reproduce and to survive. 
So where in the world might I go to look for a pangolin? <laughs> um, Google. <laughs> no, I mean, no. I, I, I oh. <laughs> to learn about them. Oh, yes, to actually see them. I'm not trying to say that I'm going to start trafficking penguins and I want to look for them. <laughs> I just wonder where they live. Yeah, primarily in Africa and Asia. And there's one species in the Philippines. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Pangolins are very interesting. Yeah, it's something I'd never heard about. It's one of those things you learn about and then suddenly, you know, they're amazing and you kind of learn all about them. <laughs> what that makes me think of is you said it's something that you learn about and then you continue to. When I think about a Google search that we do make or an Amazon search or something, where you just want to learn about something one time and then it keeps popping up. Yeah, AI is also in favor of us learning and relearning and staying on the same thing. <laughs> Excellent point. <laughs> so, Kelly, our sources tell us that you're a bit of a history buff. So we're going to put you in the time machine. And for those of you who are a bit older, you might remember Mr. Peabody and the Wayback Machine. If you could go back to any time in history, when would it be? So it's a great question. And I'm going to answer it with sort of a non-answer answer by saying that I would love to explore really any and all time in the past. And part of what fascinates me about history is how we understand the past. So what stories haven't been told because there were no records or the records didn't survive, whose voices are missing. So I would love to visit any moment in time kind of as an opportunity to look for these hidden histories and for the things that we don't really understand about the past or don't fully understand, you know, to sort of look for those paths not taken or those moments or experiences that we weren't able to learn about today. And I think it actually really connects with my work as a, in digital storytelling because there's so many stories yet to be told. And so I really think we need new ways to craft and share those stories in order to better understand our past and our present and our future. So I think embedded in your answer is the concept that we probably don't understand history as well as we think we do. Yeah, I think we're always kind of thinking of new ways to understand the past and new kinds of sources to understand, for example, things that weren't written down. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of an always evolving story. So to be able to go back and peek in and kind of see lives in progress and understand more of the complexities, I think would be really amazing. Absolutely. Beautiful imagery there, too, just to imagine, like you said, kind of peeking in on people and places. Well, on your website, Scholarly Digital Storytelling, you share a student quote, and it reads, there's life after this class. We are creating content that is usable, valuable, shareable. We find this quote to be powerful and really resonate with the message there. What is one of your favorite student projects that exemplifies this student sentiment? Yeah, thank you. It's a little bit like asking me to pick my favorite kid, but um, I'll do my oh, no. best. <laughs> okay, that's um, our next question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not answering that. Yeah. <laughs> so this class is cross-listed between history and higher education, and it also draws students from other disciplines. So rhetoric, sociology, global studies, education, which leads to really wonderful conversations and, and sort of forces students to think beyond their own disciplinary ways of knowing um, because they have to communicate with students from other areas. So, you know, even just starting within the classroom, the content is shareable by reaching new audiences and sharing new ideas. 
But these projects often go far beyond the classroom in ways that just continue to amaze me um, and really inspire me to keep doing this work. So one of my favorite higher education projects was on first-generation college students. The student who created this, who was first-gen herself, was really immersed in the subject and in the research, in the academic research. So her initial storyboard drew on articles and data and kind of sharing as much data as possible. And then she started interviewing first-gen students on campus, and she immediately knew that she had to let these powerful voices and stories be heard and really be central to the story. So the final project, it was called A Walk in Their Shoes, stories of George Mason University first-generation college students, really brilliantly weaves together the statistics and kind of pulls them out in a digestible way with the personal um, as students share their challenges and their struggles, as well as their resilience and their passion and their commitment to education. So it opens with a clip of a black male student who says, all stats show that I should either be in prison or I should be dead rather than kind of here earning a PhD. And he talks about his journey and what education meant to him and means to him. And it just connects that individual story and that human experience with the numbers. And I still feel that kind of emotional draw every time I watch that six years later. But I also have to talk about a favorite history project. So Finding Kate was one of my favorites, and it explores the life of an enslaved woman known as Kate at Muddy Hole, who served as a midwife at Mount Vernon. And there's not much written evidence about Kate's life beyond one brief mention in a letter from George Washington to his farm manager written in 1794. So this scholarly digital story asks how historians uncover these voices of the past since they can't travel back in time, our other question asked. And so while examining Kate's life and kind of putting it within a broader historical context, and it really communicates both effectively. So both of these stories have reached so many audiences through conferences, yeah. through advocacy organizations. Finding Kate is used every semester in a number of history methods classes now to talk about what's the process of doing history. And equally powerful, students are using these stories to share their work with their families and their communities. So some people say that they're able to communicate what they're doing in a scholarly way, kind of for the first time to their families and communities. Few people's parents or grandparents or children really want to read a 20-page paper that was written for a class <laughs> assignment. <laughs> As you, you can imagine. imagine why. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they'll gladly watch a 10-minute scholarly digital story. So this work kind of opens up that dialogue and communication far beyond one single classroom. How widely are these techniques being used, do you think? You mean scholarly digital storytelling? Yeah. So I would say fairly widely, but I'll talk a little bit more. You asked about what is digital storytelling. So I think scholarly digital storytelling is kind of different from that, but I think there's room to expand. So let's do that right now. Yeah, I would love to hear. <laughs> you actually provided your own segue because our next question <laughs> is, let's talk about scholarly digital storytelling. 
So at its core, I think digital storytelling is pretty simple. It's about using digital tools to create and distribute stories. It can be a lot of things. It can be narrative. It can be interactive. It can be linear. It can be nonlinear. It can be ethnographic. It could be artistic. And it can also be scholarly. So the concept of digital storytelling isn't new, but it was used for a long time and still is used to tell personal stories or community stories. And I love that idea. There's a lot of great work happening in that area. But I also saw ways to connect it to my own teaching and research in higher education, and I saw a lot of potential for it. So I came up with the phrase scholarly digital storytelling to help define what my students were doing and creating. And for me, it's really about reimagining academic research, rethinking kind of intended audiences and scholarly communication as a whole. So providing opportunities to examine evidence and arguments in new ways, to reframe academic research, and to learn practical digital skills, which I think is important and we need more of. So my class is designed around inquiry-based learning, which emphasizes research based on students' own scholarly interests. So students come to the class and they, based on their work and their experiences, they select a topic, they pitch a topic. We workshop that a lot as students revise and refine and typically have to narrow a lot um, their topic to focus on kind of what's possible in one semester. But students have done a huge wide range of topics. Uh, so Filipinos in the U.S. Navy, the displaced people of the Shenandoah National Park, holistic application review, a really fabulous interactive digital story looking at open world games and narrative. Recently, a student did a cross-cultural exploration of sleep paralysis, which I knew nothing about before. <laughs> and I just, I love teaching this class because I'm always learning something new from my students and from their work. So for me, scholarly digital storytelling is really about process as much as it is about content. And it's about learning to think visually and to communicate visually, while also learning about sound and pacing and framing and then developing those digital literacy skills through experimenting and iterative thinking and editing, which is not intuitive if you haven't done it before. Yeah. So it's about reaching these audiences beyond academia. And one student I interviewed for this research said that the experience of learning to tell a story digitally taught her to be, and she said, fearlessly creative. And I just wow. loved that. Like, I think this is one of the best skills or habits of mind that we could possibly teach students to take forward in their lives, kind of whatever their future path. It seems like that those skills could be embedded in courses yes. in virtually every academic discipline, helping students to think differently about what they're doing and what they're going to do. Yeah, I agree. And it can be done in bite-sized ways. So mm -hmm. I feel really privileged that I've been able to teach this as a semester-long course. But okay. it can also be kind of a mini assignment that still gets at some of these skills and experiences. Are the courses that you've taught primarily on-site, face-to-face, with then some digital elements to them, or are they online or hybrid type setup? That's a great question. Um, before the pandemic, <laughs> it was typically face-to-face, -face, although we do a lot of workshop sessions that are sort of a little more open. During the pandemic, I taught it fully online. And it actually worked really well. It's, it's always different when you're teaching online than in person, yeah. um, but I think we adapted it well and the students created great projects. What was coming to mind for me was there's one aspect of this, which would be empowering the students to do the digital storytelling and 
but then there's also the design of the course. So if you are teaching online, how you set up the course, you could model digital storytelling through the teaching aspect, not just through the assignment aspect, which would be a challenge, but it would be a really neat class to take. Excellent. Yeah, I love that. Um, When it comes to the type of student that is ready for an experience like this, does it matter if they're someone coming in for a certificate versus somebody in a doctoral program? Or really, have you seen value with digital storytelling at all levels of the academic journey? I would say there's values at all levels of the academic journey, for sure. And interviewed faculty really around the world who were doing what I call scholarly digital storytelling, who were teaching at the undergraduate level, at the graduate level, and found these amazing similarities in our experiences. How common is this around the globe? That's a great question. (laughs) I don't have exact (laughs) numbers. You know, I think it sort of happens because people hear about it or they meet someone who's done it or, you know, ideally now they're going to start reading more of the research about it. You know, you have to be willing to take some risks pedagogically to try it if you've never done this before. But I think the more people see the potential and what it can do, as well as supporting that digital skill development, which is really essential, I think, in higher education, um, I hope to see even more. Excellent. I just am wrapping up a course right now, the 360 social psychology course, and the students were asked in this last workshop to create an electronic presentation or a topic of their choosing. So it kind of reminds me of what you're describing. It was very, as a personal topic for them, something where they could apply a social theoretical foundation and make a change or inspire hope in their communities. But I will say it was not enough to just put in the instructions to create an electronic presentation. I think if we were aiming for digital storytelling, we would be much more specific and providing rich examples and kind of walk them through what that looks like. So I can see how it's more than just a couple terms, you know, that you put into your instructions. It's more robust than that to inspire students to engage in that activity. And I would guess the results of that assignment were rather disappointing. You would be correct. (laughs) You would be very correct. Very correct on my, I mean, but yes. Yeah. I've learned to really, and I've learned this because I've now taught it a number of times but to really scaffold it. And I this really came out in the interviews I did with faculty in other disciplines and at other universities as well, that you, know, you start with really small assignments, building like, what does it mean to think visually? What does it mean to you know, try different audio tracks and how does that shape your digital story? As well as sort of building the conceptual piece and the research piece or the content piece. And you know, seeing examples is really helpful of kind of what it can look like. But it's it's a learning curve. It took me a while to sort of figure out all the pieces and how and when to teach them. So which is more challenging for students, the techniques of research and fact-finding or the digital components of compiling those into a digital story? Mm. I would have to say it depends. (laughs) 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 Um, So, you know, some students have come to the class and they've already, they're filmmakers, right? Occasionally there's someone who has a lot of experience and some people have come to the class and they're like, I've never even taken a video on my phone, but I really want to try. (laughs) So, you know, for me, it's about growth. It's about, you know, you start where you are and you learn as many skills. And so some students struggle more with 
the kind of conceptual piece. And often that's about how do you tell the story? So the storytelling is kind of the third piece of that. And we don't always emphasize it in higher education. You know, how do you tell a good story? How do you communicate this research that you're doing to someone who's not also kind of already embedded in that research? So those are sort of the three legs of the stool and different students come with different experiences and different comfort level learning all of those. But we do, I do support all of those in the class. So they sort of bring them along in different ways. And, and there is a lot of individual support too. So working individually with students. So if they're struggling with a particular technique or how to frame the opening, how much of their story they can tell in 10 minutes, mm -hmm. I work with them individually on that too. We're really enjoying our time talking with Kelly, but we're going to actually pause right here and be back next week on the Digital to Learn podcast for part two. Join us then. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.